this morning, if you want to get your Bibles out, um, it, we are going to be reading through Mark 14, verses 12 to 25. Um, I'm actually going to just be reading through that like normal, and we're going to go verse by verse like we I usually do, but just want to give that uh, kind of warning for you guys. If you want to follow along, please, whether it's a physical Bible or a Bible app, have Mark 14 open, specifically verses 12 to 25. Now, I'm pretty sure I was saved at a young age. I'm pretty sure I was saved when I was around seven. Um, I was in our family's van. We were actually parked in a parking lot. My parents had run into a store to pick up something. And for some reason, that was the time and place that I just felt like I needed to pray and I needed to ask Jesus into my life. I needed a, I knew I needed to have a relationship with him. And I am... Very confident I did that with a genuine heart, like that was the moment of my salvation. I want to tell you all that. I want to tell you and emphasize that I'm, I'm very sure that that was my moment of salvation because I think I also had some other ulterior motives behind praying that prayer and wanting to become saved. Because you see, as a child, at the specific church that I grew up in, whenever communion came around, they very, they made it very specific that if you were not saved, you shouldn't take, you shouldn't take communion. Which meant that about once a month, I kind of felt left out as a kid. Now as, as a seven year old, I really didn't understand communion. I really didn't understand what it all meant. I didn't know what the bread or the juice that they were drinking, what, what that signified. Like they would say it, but I guess, I, you know, at that age, all I know is that my family and some of my cousins and stuff that I'm going to church with, they're all getting to eat something that I don't get to eat. And because it was kind of this forbidden, like, you know, thing that I couldn't touch, it made me want it even more. It made me think, oh, that's got to be something that must, you know, that must be something that tastes so delicious that everybody else gets to enjoy and I don't. Well, if you've never taken communion, let me, let me get, let you in on a little secret about communion and that if you are like me as a seven-year-old thinking that you're missing out on something that tastes really well, it doesn't taste good at all. Like, I don't know what it is about churches, but I think like almost all the churches I've been to, they always seem to find like the things that like just don't taste good at all. And those are the things they use for communion. Like, I am very appreciative of the little like communion cups that we use, right? I am actually, I'm very appreciative of the fact that they've designed these little cups so that, you know, we're in this, we're in a day and age where there's disease that gets spread easily among people, and so they're very all self-contained, and I understand why we do that. But man, you'd think that they would have figured out how to make something that doesn't taste like styrofoam, right? <laughs> like, I don't know, I never, I never understand that. So when I was a seven-year-old and I finally got to enjoy, enjoy the Lord's Supper, I was disappointed because I was doing it for the wrong reason, right? I was missing the point. You know, what we're going to see today is that communion means so much more than getting to eat something or drink something. It's a reminder of the fact that we are under a new covenant, one that is secured by the event that we will be remembering this Friday and Sunday. Right? Because as you all know, as we've noticed, as you have all the flyers, right? Friday is Good Friday. Sunday is Easter. And as we started last week, we are continuing our journey today 
towards Easter. Last week, we talked about the story of when Mary, when this woman, right, as Mark puts it, but we know it's Mary from John, comes in and pours this expensive perfume over Jesus' head. And we also talked about how that story actually is not just about Mary, but it's actually about Judas, right? We talked about how Jesus was trying to show Judas how he was w- worth more than anything Judas could get in this, in this world. Jesus wanted Judas to look past his greed and look at the very Son of God that was with him. But we also read last week about how Judas instead saw that Jesus was no longer going to be a financial benefit for him. He was no, no longer going to get anything out of him. So Judas decides he's going to get one last, uh, so, one last way to make some money off of Jesus, and he goes to the chief priests and the scribes and tells them, hey, I'm willing to betray Jesus. What will you pay me? And so what we read last week was happening on the Wednesday before Jesus' death, and now what we're reading is on the Thursday, the day before Good Friday. Now, Mark gives us a key detail that is like literally the key to understanding this whole passage right away in verse 12. If you, like I said, if you have your Bibles open, read just the very first part of verse 12 with me. It says this, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. You see, this isn't Mark just trying to give us some like helpful like information. It's not him just trying to give us information to let us know like, what time, what's the time frame that this event was taking place? Because Mark could have easily just said, the next day. Or he could have just said, you know, on the, the first day of, un, of unleavened bread, right? If he just stopped there, we would have known perfectly. But he adds this extra detail. He says, it's the day where they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Mark wants us to be thinking about the Passover lamb when we're reading these verses. But that also means... We need to understand what the Passover lamb is in order to understand what Mark is trying to show us. So real quick, I'm going to give you a very, very brief overview of Passover and where that came from. I'd love to do a nerdy deep dive. If you would like to do a nerdy deep dive, tell me. I would love to set up a time and we could just talk about this. But real quick overview. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we read that the Israelites are down in Egypt and the Egyptians make them slaves, right? Pharaoh, at that time, he's afraid of the Israelites, so he even decrees that all of the male children that are born are to be thrown into the Nile and be killed. And that's when Moses shows up at the scene, right? And he is famously, he's rescued because he's put in a little ark, and he's put onto the Nile River, and he actually is found by Pharaoh's daughter, and he grows up in Pharaoh's household. And some point, when Moses gets older, he decides that he's going to save the Israelites. And he tries to do it by his own power. He, he kills an Egyptian. He tries to hide the body, but that all backfires. And he ends up having to flee from Egypt into exile in the wilderness. And while he's there, God shows up and has a little chat with him. And he's like, you're going to go back to Egypt. And you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, he does that. And Pharaoh says no. And God's like, well, that's cool, Pharaoh. Well, here, have some plagues. And right after each plague, Moses shows up again. Hey, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, nope. And that happens nine times. And then God says he's going to send one final plague. And this final judgment, this final plague that God is going to send is actually a reflection on 
what the first Pharaoh that we heard about did with the Israelite boys. Because just like how that Pharaoh said that all of the Israelite boys were going to die, God said, well, I'm going to come in and I'm going to kill the firstborn of all Egypt. But here's a key thing that God does that's very different than Pharaoh. God provides a way for anyone who trusts him and fears his name to be able to be saved, right? He provides a way to escape the punishment of that plague. He tells Moses to go tell everybody else to go get a lamb, kill that lamb, and put the blood on, your, on the doorposts of your house. And when you do that, when God comes, he will see the blood, and it says he will which literally means, and I will skip or pass over you all. What you need to know here is that this is the defining moment for the Jewish people. Like, God rescuing his people out of Egypt is going to be referenced or alluded to in basically every book of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament. Like, this is such a key thing that their calendar is wrapped around it. Like, you know, in the West, we've designed our calendars around the event of Christ's birth, right? You have B.C., before Christ, and you have A.D., Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. In the same way, that's what the Jews did, but with this event, this Passover event. Exodus 12, 1 through 2 tells us, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. <clears throat> so when Mark tells us that this is the day that the Passover lamb is sacrificed, he wants us to immediately upload all that background information into our minds, right? He wants us to remember that it was through a sacrifice of an innocent lamb that God would pass over and the firstborn would be saved from death. He also wants to remind us that it was this event that God would use to bring e the, his people out of Egypt because it was this plague that would finally cause Pharaoh to give up. He especially wants us to be thinking about how it was the blood specifically that told God to pass over a specific house and that it was the body of the lamb that they would have ate that night that would have prepared them, that would have sustained them for the journey that they were about to take. So if the sacrifice, the event, the blood, and the body in mind, let's continue reading through our passage. Let's look at the rest of verse 12 all the way to 16. And the disciples said, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now real quick, there's two ways you could interpret this little section of the text. You could see it as Jesus, he's just he's God, so he just knows what's going to happen, right? He knows that if his, if his disciples go in at the right time, they're going to meet the right person that will bring them to the right house and all that stuff. Like he just knows it all work out. The other way you could see this is that Jesus had secretly planned this all ahead of time without the disciples knowing. Like when he sent the disciples in, they're meeting somebody he had already planned for them to meet. <coughs> Either way, the bigger detail is that only Jesus knew where they were going to have the Passover. And you might be wondering, well, 
Why is that a big deal? Well, what did we read about last week? We read about Judas. Specifically, we read about how Judas has now decided that he's going to betray Jesus. He's looking for an opportunity to have Jesus alone so that the the chief priests and the scribes can come in and arrest him. And a Passover meal would be a great place where Jesus would be by himself. Yeah, he would have some of his disciples with him, but he'd be away from the crowds and they could arrest him quietly. Jesus knows that's what Judas is trying to do, but he also knows that what's going to happen tonight is so important. He can't let Judas betray him before what is going to happen. In fact, once they get there, once they get to the room and they start enjoying the Passover meal together, Jesus lets the cat out of the bag and even announces that he knows he's going to be betrayed. Read verses 17 to 21. It says this, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Again, this makes me think about what we talked about last week, that Jesus hasn't given up on Judas yet. Even here at the very end, at the very last moments where he's going to have time to really talk to Judas. First, he points out that he knows it's one of the twelve. He knows it's one of his closest disciples. In fact, he seems to be referencing Psalm 41.9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus admits that he has to suffer. Right? He says the Son of Man goes as it is written of him because of things that are prophesied about the Messiah, like Isaiah 53. Like the whole chapter of Isaiah 53 basically describes how the Messiah was sent to suffer and how he was going to bear our sins. Yet I feel that last statement, saying that it would have been better for the man who betrays the Son of Man to never been born, is like Jesus giving Judas one last warning. He's, it's like Jesus is saying, Judas, I know that you're going to betray me. I know what you've already planned. This is not going to work out for you. Like, it's a last-minute effort to give Judas one last chance to turn back. And again, <clears throat> I think it's just so powerful to see that Jesus does not give up on people. Right? There's going to be times where it might feel like Jesus has given up on us. It might feel like we're all alone and that he, God's not there. And yet even in those times, Jesus standing next to us. So now if all that, all that said, all that builds up to this climax, right? The climax of this passage is the next set of verses. It's the reason why Jesus had to make sure that they were able to have Passover together. Let's read verses 22 to 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take this, my body. And he took a cup and when he w had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God.
So we've gone full circle. What I mean by that is that Mark started off by talking about the Passover lamb. He's reminding us of everything that happened way back in Exodus and how that this event was so central to the whole Bible and of the event that would actually change the future for the Israelite nation as they would then become God's representatives. And the reason he wants us to have that in the back of our heads is because Jesus just redefined the whole thing. You see, during a Passover meal, and even today, if you do a traditional Passover meal with, with, if you had some Jewish friends and they invited you over, they would tell you how every single thing in that meal has a meaning. Everything in that meal has a significance. Every part was to remind you of what God did in Egypt and pointed to the fact that God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying that a new Passover event is happening. He's saying right now is a new thing that's going to happen, that just how that event changed the course of history, this event is also changing the course of history. You see, the old one, right, the old Passover was the thing that marked freedom for the Jews from Egypt. It marked the beginning of a covenantal relationship between them and Yahweh. And Jesus is about to do the same thing, but on a grander scale, because you see, he's going to free everyone from slavery, but he's going to free everyone from being slaves to sin. He is about to establish the ability not just to have a covenantal relationship, not to have just a relationship between two people where you have some kind of agreement, but an intimate relationship with Yahweh. Jesus takes this bread, right? The bread that is a symbol for how quickly things can go once God starts to move, right? A symbol for the people at the time that they had to be ready to go at any point because God was going to free them at any moment. And Jesus says, this is now a symbol of him. Just like how eating it was to remind God's people that that was the moment they were slaved from saved from physical slavery, we now eat it as remembering that that was the moment that we were saved from spiritual slavery. And then Jesus takes the cup, right? And he declares it to be his blood of the covenant. And when Jesus does this, he does a couple of things. First, he's signaling that, there, that the promised new covenant from Jeremiah is now happening. If you have your Bibles out, flip quickly to Jeremiah 31. While you're tapping on your screens or flipping your pages, Jeremiah 31, uh, basically the context is that the northern kingdom of Israel has already gone into exile by this point. They have already been conquered. They're, they've been scattered among the nations. The southern kingdom of Judah uh, has actually kind of like two two exiles in a, in a way. They have a first one where Babylon has come in, Babylon puts in a, pop, a puppet king, and then takes some of the best people of Judah back to Babylon. We actually read about that in Daniel, because Daniel is one of those people that was taken during that first little exile. Eventually, that puppet king is going to try to rebel against the king of Babylon, and Babylon's just going to come and wipe out the rest of Judah. And Jeremiah 31, what we're reading, is taking place in between those two exiles. But the thing is, is that Jeremiah, this whole time, has been telling the people that are left in Judah, get ready, your time's coming. Like, he's telling them, we're all going to be taken into exile. But Jeremiah wants them to know that there is hope, that there is a future hope for 
all of the Israelites, no matter where they're scattered in exile, there's a future hope where they're all going to be brought back to the land of Israel. And it all builds up to verse 31. So if you have Jeremiah 31 open, look at verse 31 and 32 with me. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Jesus is now fulfilling what Jeremiah just said, right? Jesus is saying that just like that old Passover, that Passover marked the start of the old covenant, the Passover that they are now partaking of is marking the start of a new covenant. And notice this: what's different about this covenant is what Jeremiah tells us in 30, verses 33 to 34. They say this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. <coughs> I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The old covenant was written down on tablets of stone. This covenant is written directly on our hearts. Uh, in the old covenant, people had to teach each other about this God that was far off, this God that, was, that had some kind of distance between them. Under the new covenant, we get to know God intimately because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us that connects us directly to him. In the old covenant, they performed regular sacrifices to seek atonement for their sins. But under the new one, God forgives our sins and remembers them no more. How awesome it is that we get to live under this new covenant. But there's something we need to know about this new covenant and that it does not come free, right? Because Jesus, again, when he had the wine, he said, this is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many. The Hebrew word used there in Jeremiah and everywhere in the Old Testament when it comes to making covenants, whenever it says, I will make a covenant, the Hebrew word there for make uh, that is translated as make is karat, which is, which you might think, well, okay, karath, that must be the word in Hebrew that means make. But here's the thing. Karath does not mean make in Hebrew. In fact, if you were to look up karath in a Hebrew lexicon, which is like the, a Hebrew dictionary, the first thing, the first definition it would tell you is that it means to cut. Like, that should maybe puzzle you for a second. Like, well, why would that be the word that is used when it's describing that they're making a covenant? Well, that's because when you created a covenant in old times to ratify the agreement, to make sure that the covenant to say that this is actually going to happen, an animal would be sacrificed. An animal would be cut up. So when God says he's going to make a new covenant, he's literally saying, I will cut a new covenant because to create a covenant, something needed to be sacrificed. Something had to have its blood poured out. You see, when Jesus said that this is my blood of the covenant, he's telling the disciples that he is the true Passover lamb, that 
he's going to be sacrificed so that the new Passover can take place. And Jesus' word there, saying that it's my blood of the covenant, is a kind of a wordplay that ties it back to Zechariah 9. See, Zechariah 9, 9 through 11 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. <clears throat> like Joel mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday, right? Because thousands of years ago, Jesus did that first part of what Zechariah 9, the passage we just read, told us about, right? He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He came to speak peace to the nations. And now at the end of the week, Jesus is fulfilling that last part. Because in verse 11 of Zechariah 9, notice that it said, because of the blood of my covenant. And Jesus just now declared whose blood it is that's going to set the prisoners free. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Like this gets, this is just a central part of the whole New Testament, right? When John the Baptist sees Jesus, John 1.29 says that he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, when it describes Jesus showing up to open up the scrolls, Revelation 5, 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And if I haven't driven this point home enough, one last fun fact for you. Um, the Passover, the sheep that would be used for Paso the Passover sacrifice, the lambs that would be used were raised in Bethlehem. In fact, the shepherds, some of the first people who show up to see Jesus on the night that he's born, were probably looking over the flock that the Passover lamb would have come out of. Through Jesus, we get to enter into a covenant with the very being that created the universe, the very one who created each one of us, whose spirit is what gives us the breath of life. In this covenant, we no longer have some kind of legal agreement that we had to like sign off on. We don't have to learn about a God that is far off. We get to have an intimate relationship with him. We get to know him in a powerful way as his spirit lives inside of us. And notice once again, Jesus's blood is poured out for the many. Just like in the first Passover, anybody could have sacrificed a lamb, put the blood on their doorposts, to save their for the firstborn in their house, right? It doesn't say only the Israelite, like only Israelites could be saved. Anybody who did that could be saved from what God was going to do. And in the same way, Jesus' sacrifice is to create a new covenant to anyone who's open to receiving it. And so when we partake of communion, we need to ignore the fact that the little bread part is probably not what most of us would call bread, right? We need to ignore the part that the little cups are very annoying to try to open up to get to the juice, right? We need to look past those things, and we need to focus on what each part of it actually means. 
Because the truth is, and this might sound controversial, it, it doesn't really matter what the bread or drink is. Because I mean, if we really wanted to literally follow scripture, we should be making the unleavened bread like they would have been making during Passover, and we should have wine. And I know some of you might think, well, that's a great idea. Why don't we use wine? But all that aside, when we eat the bread, we should be reflecting on how Jesus now sustains us for the journey that he is about to take us on. And when we drink, we remember that the only reason we're able to have a relationship with God is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Just as God had passed over each of those houses, we get to pass over from death to life because of the blood of Jesus. So what? We can sometimes become so familiar with something that we sometimes forget the meaning, right? Or sometimes we start to ignore the meaning because we're so caught up with the actual ritual, actually doing the, the specific things that we forget about why we're doing it. In fact, from the New Testament, we see that the Corinthian church actually suffered from this issue, right? The traditional passage that is often used during uh, communion, like the time of communion, is comes from a passage in the letter to the Corinthians where Paul's actually trying to correct them. You see, the church there in Corinth They've, they started to use the, the Lord's Supper as an excuse to throw a feast, but not a feast for everybody in the church. What had happened, it had become a time where the rich members of the church got to enjoy this food, and the poor members didn't get anything. It was actually causing a division in the church. You see, the church there had missed the point. Let's not miss the point. Let's remember what each part of communion means. Let's remember that this is our Passover event. This was the moment of the creation of a new covenant. And it is because of that night that we can have hope. So two questions to leave you with. Do you recognize who your Passover lamb is? And are you missing the point? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much that you sent your son to pour out his blood for the many. That you sent your son to create a way so that we could be under a new covenant, a covenant that allows us to know you on a deeper level than we could ever know you. A covenant where you forgive us of our sins even though we don't deserve it a covenant that was established and secured by your own son's blood. God, I pray that as we start into what many call Holy Week this week, as we look forward to Good Friday, as we look forward to Easter, that we will keep our eyes on you. That we will keep our eyes on your son that we will recognize that he is our Passover lamb. And God, I pray that when we take communion, that we will not be missing the point of why we're eating that bread or why we're drinking that drink, but that we will understand and that we will just celebrate and we will rejoice in what your son has done for us. Thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you will do. In your name.
Amen.